this is all going to take years to sort out. And so it's not like we're going to see any kind of quick recovery for the people in Flint. Left to its own responsibilities, the local health department could have stopped this immediately. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I read a legal blog called May It Please the Court. And this is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. Bob, before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio, an online practice management program for lawyers at goclio.com. Craig, there's presently a public health crisis plaguing the city of Flint, Michigan. Lead contamination in the water has led to major public health danger. It all started back in 2014 when Flint changed its water source from treated water being provided through the city of Detroit to water taken out of the Flint River. Since then, Flint's drinking water has had a host of problems. Well, this Flint River water then caused lead from aging pipes to seep into the water supply, causing extremely high levels of lead. Between six to 12,000 children have been exposed and they may experience a range of serious health problems. On January 21st this year, 2016, the EPA issued an emergency administrative order finding that the city of Flint and the state of Michigan's responses to the drinking water crisis in Flint have been inadequate to protect public health and that these failures continue. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take a look at the Flint water crisis, the violation of public health laws, who's legally responsible, the impact on the Flint community, and the residents' health and litigation and the long-term effects that this crisis is likely to cause. And to do that, our first guest today is Professor Peter Jacobson, Professor of Health Management and Policy at the School of Public Health at the University of Michigan. Peter's an attorney and health policy expert whose research focuses on public health law and public health systems as well as services. He's the director of the Center for Law, Ethics, and Health. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Professor Peter Jacobson. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on the phone with you. And also joining us today is a a returning guest to this show, uh, Professor Peter J. Henning from Wayne State University Law School. Professor Henning teaches courses in corporations, white-collar crime, professional responsibility in the legal profession, criminal law, criminal procedure, criminal pretrial advocacy, and securities litigation. He was on our show uh, five years ago on a very different topic, talking about campaign finance law, but he's been writing recently, in particular, an article in the New York Times titled, Assessment of Flint Water Crisis May Hinge on Stupidity versus Criminality. So we're happy to have back to the show, Professor Peter J. Henning. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer. Thank you, Bob. So I wanted to start with Peter Jacobson, if I could, and just ask if you could give us a little bit of the chronology of how this crisis evolved and how we got to where we are today. Happy to do that. The chronology starts with the appointment of the emergency manager in Flint. That's important to understand because influences the way the legal issues play out in terms of, at a minimum, the authority for actions taken and not taken. Under Michigan law, 
the governor has the authority to appoint an emergency manager when a city or a municipality is in distress. Flint was under considerable economic pressure, and the governor appointed an emergency manager who, under Michigan law, has a full authority to make decisions on behalf of the city of Flint. Is that like a receiver, essentially, or something like that? That's an interesting question. One of the analogies to be made is whether this is a receivership. Certainly, the analogy is apt. Whether the legal implications of that analogy are going to play out in the same way is something that I haven't looked at yet, but it's on my agenda to do so. So that's a great point. But effectively, it's a receivership. One of the first actions the emergency manager took was to shift the water, as you noted, from the Detroit River to Flint. Despite the fact that there were almost immediately concerns about the taste and color of the water, the action was taken to save $5 million. And the emergency manager did not consult with the community, ignored both the health department's concerns and those of the county commissioners in making the decision. So not too long after that, the complaints continued. They were ignored. There were complaints to Michigan's Department of Environmental Quality. They were ignored. The Chicago region and the EPA ignored the complaints. Then you had the Legionnaire's disease that was also ignored. Finally, all of this exploded when Professor Edwards from Virginia Tech talked about the corroded lead pipes, and Dr. Hannah Atish identified children who had been exposed to lead poisoning as a result of the water. And then finally, the governor started to take action. People lost their jobs at the State Department of Environmental Quality. People lost their jobs at the EPA. And that's where we are now with the state of Michigan putting in some money to rebuild the pipes and some federal money to begin to treat people, and particularly children, with the exposure to lead. Professor Henning, as we look at the liability for this type of thing, both civil and criminal, how does all of this play out in the long run and how does immunity play into it? Well, certainly you have issues of uh, sovereign immunity with regard to any lawsuits against the state or from the Flint City Council. You have, as Dr. Jacobson was talking about, the emergency manager. Part of that statute included a grant of absolute immunity. And so the city manager cannot be sued for damages. So at least on the civil side, you do have issues that are going to come up as to who can you sue, even if you can sue the city of Flint. Flint really doesn't have two nickels to rub together. So that's why they're in this mess. So it doesn't do you much good to go after the city of Flint. Maybe you can go after the state, although that's going to be a tough call. So on the criminal side, Possibly some cases, uh, they're certainly being explored involving, for example, uh, Michigan Department of Environmental Quality people, maybe some of the people who reported to EPA or Michigan has a law called misconduct in office or a crime 
called misconduct in office. Maybe that. But on the criminal side, those are going to be tough cases to establish, too. So, you know, the legal liability, if you're talking damages, is still going to be played out. I wonder, what are you going to get unless you get an appropriation out of the state or federal government to compensate people? One of the essential issues here is establishing a compensation fund. It could be modeled on the vaccine compensation fund, for example, so that you don't have to necessarily show causation if you have lead poisoning, you're entitled to compensation. As Professor Henning suggests, who would fund that remains an issue, but it's one possibility here. I'm wondering also whether something in the emergency manager law that could be used as a basis for litigation for failure to undertake a health impact assessment. Professor Henning, do you know anything about that? Well, I guess that would be a possibility, although, again, because of, you know, on the civil side, you have the immunity granted. On the criminal side, if I'm a prosecutor, I don't know if I want to bring a case that starts bringing in some rather complicated health judgment issues saying, well, you should have known this and you should have done a better job. Should-haves are tough to establish in a criminal prosecution. There does seem to be gross negligence here. If anything comes close to gross negligence, this is going to be it. But then, you know, on the criminal side, you have the issue of could you convince a jury when you had so many different players it triggers the idea of whether there's insurance to cover this. Is there anyone along the chain that's been involved in this from a governmental entity standpoint that might provide coverage to its citizens for this? Say, for example, the city? Well, as I understand it, uh, both the city and the state use that very famous insurance company called self-insurance for any type of large amounts. So really what you're looking at is the legislature or Congress or some combination to create, like Dr. Jacobson said, some type of compensation fund. But of course, now you're in politics rather than insurance. So I don't think there's a deep pocket here except for the Michigan State Legislature and maybe the Congress. Well, as I understand it, there have been a number of lawsuits filed already. I'm not sure of the count. I saw at least 10 had been filed. Some of them are class action suits. And in the news reports that I've read about them, some of the lawyers are saying that they're not worried about the sovereign immunity issue because they are pursuing, quote unquote, creative arguments on behalf of the plaintiffs in these cases. Do we know yet what those creative arguments are and how they might try and get around the sovereign immunity issue? Well, one way around it, of course, is not so much for damages, but to seek in order to fix the pipes, deliver water that is not a health threat and things like that. So, and certainly those, one part of the lawsuits, there was one filed by an organization of ministers in the ACLU that said, look, you gotta comply with the Safe Drinking Water Act. The problem with any order in those cases is going to be, that's what the problem is. We'd love to be able to fix the pipes, but where do you come up with the, you know, I've seen numbers running from $2 billion to $7 billion to fix the pipes. Who's going to come up with those dollar figures? So I do like lawyers saying they have creative ways to get damages, but <laughs> good well, luck. Could you argue sort of from an equitable remedy, asking for a mandatory injunction to fix the pipes, and then it's up to the state 
to figure out how to do that. So you can do it in some more cost-effective ways. Perhaps you could set priorities based on certain criteria, number of children and other vulnerable populations in the house. Even if you could do that, though, it's not going to provide damages. So for those that are facing compensatory damages, I agree that sovereign immunity is hard to overcome in this kind of case. One could argue that there's a constitutional violation here. One could argue that it's a due process violation because of the appointment of the emergency manager. The state essentially takes responsibility. The problem is, again, you get damages for a due process violation, 14th Amendment due process violation, even if you can overcome some of the barriers. It's not my area of law, so I doubt that it satisfies the individual plaintiffs. Well, one of the news articles that I read said that one of the lawsuits makes that very claim. Again, I haven't seen the lawsuit itself, but an article in Newsweek said that one of the Flint lawsuits makes a federal constitutional argument. It contends that the decision to switch the water source denied residents their civil rights to bodily integrity and to be free from state-created danger. Right. You have to overcome the Deshaney case that really raised the bar of being able to sue a state for this kind of Again, I'll use the term gross negligence. The difference is in Deshaney, the state never took custody of a child who was then beaten and killed by his father. Here, I haven't seen that filing either, but you have to argue that by appointing an emergency manager, the state essentially takes control, and therefore it has the responsibility of acting reasonably and with all due regard to investigating the facts. And that's where this whole question of what's the emergency manager's responsibility with regard to protecting the public's health while he, in this case, he is operating to relieve a distressed city from, as Professor Hanning suggested, onerous fiscal mismanagement. We're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, with most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Bob Ambrogi and uh, joining my co-host Jay Craig Williams and I today 
to talk about the Flint water crisis are Professor Peter Jacobson, Professor of Health Management and Policy at the School of Public Health at the University of Michigan, and Professor Peter Henning from Wayne State University Law School. There are so many areas of law impacted by this. There are environmental law issues, criminal law issues, tort law issues, I guess, constitutional law issues. I wanted to just follow up a little bit more on the constitutional issues that we were talking about. And I know that you, I'm sorry, I forget which of you alluded to this, but there is this gross negligence exception, as I understand it, under the state constitution in Michigan that does provide a way around the sovereign immunity laws. What exactly does that do and who might that apply to here? Well, you know, for gross negligence to prove it and to get around the the sovereign immunity, it's going to require showing the state involvement. And there's the question, as Professor Jacobson had mentioned, does the emergency manager equate to the state? The emergency managers are appointed by the state, but this is a law that was designed to give the state the power, but not the responsibility. So would a court end up attributing the emergency manager to the state? And then, of course, you have to prove the gross negligence and identify someone in the state. You have a failure here, an abject failure, but can you attribute it to the state? And then, of course, you have, as in any tort lawsuit, you've got the damages issue. Certainly there have been damages, but when you're talking about individual recovery, how far does that go? What does it cover? And so that's really going to be an important issue. And the proximate cause, I assume, would be a tough issue in terms of establishing the connection between the lead poisoning and the lead in the water. It could be. But from what I've heard from my colleagues who are experts in the science, it seems pretty clear that the lead levels that children and adults have been exposed to pre-post the switch to the Flint River are statistically significant. And therefore, I think that it's more probable than not that the switch to the Flint River can be shown to have caused the increased lead levels. Now, you don't necessarily have longitudinal data on individuals affected, but you will have population data and clearly draw an inference that there's a statistically significant change pre-post the shift that, as I understand it, could meet the burden of proof. This is all going to take years to sort out. Yeah. And so... It's not like we're going to see any kind of quick recovery for the people in Flint. And they're the ones who really need the help. Are we looking here at the death of a city? I mean, I have not heard one good thing about this crisis yet. Well, unfortunately, Flint has been teetering on the brink for quite a while. Um, I mean, this, you know, uh, Roger and me, if you're familiar with that, was about closing the auto plants in Flint. Does it kill Flint? Well, unfortunately, you have a large population there that's so poor they can't move away. But it's going to require something pretty dramatic to save Flint. When the University of Michigan faculty from all three campuses, Dearborn, Flint, and Ann Arbor, who were interested in the session, met in Flint, one thing that the Flint faculty said, and some community representatives also, is yes, Flint has a high poverty level. Yes, the median income is way down from the 1960s, but there's still a substantial 
portion of the people who have money, whose homes aren't destroyed. There's a new cultural center and some other amenities that are getting no attention. And the community was very frustrated. For obvious reasons, all of the stories about Flint are negative, and they understand, but none of the resilience of Flint residents and the community organization is being captured in the media attention. What's the takeaway from this? What are we supposed to learn as a government about how to handle these situations? What do we need to learn? I think the first point is to understand that when there's a fiscal crisis or any sort of crisis where an emergency manager must be appointed, and many states have similar legislation, any decisions that are made must take into account the potential health effects. Just look at this. To save $5 million, we're now talking about $2 billion or even more than that. So for me, you cannot have, as Professor Henning suggested, power without responsibility. If you're going to take power, then you must take responsibility as a state government. That's a key failure and must be rectified in any similar situation. And I would just add to that, that when you look at how this situation developed, that there are real limits to what the law can do. There's a law on the books called the Safe Drinking Water Act that says you've got to do this to protect the population and their drinking water, and it relied on state and local governments. It didn't have any enforcement provisions in there, really, because everyone assumed that state and local government would do the right thing. So as Professor Jacobson says, look, all of a sudden you have a financial crisis and no one thought this through. And so the law is going to rely on state and local governments. And we know that there are states that have massive pension liabilities and you know could be facing, if not bankruptcy, at least very severe financial problems. What's going to be the health impact of that? Because the easiest place to cut back is on expenditures to deal with infrastructure and things like that. And this is an infrastructure issue. And of course, let's save $5 million. This is truly penny wise and pound foolish. Where were the legal protections before this all happened? Shouldn't there have been some procedures in place that would have required a a more thorough analysis of the decision to shift this water supply and the impact it might have? There are, but they're all suspended by the emergency manager law, which provides for no requirements of taking ancillary effects into account. Under the Michigan Public Health Code, both the state and the local health department have parallel authority to take action. So if left to its own responsibilities, the local health department could have stopped this immediately or could have certainly gone to court to argue that the shift would threaten the public health and present evidence. But the emergency manager law strips the department of any authority and usurps it in favor of the emergency manager. That's the failure. That's the deficiency of the emergency manager law. But it seems that nobody was even waving red flags. It seems that this was back in April. You're right. What happened was that the initial testing was flawed. So the initial testing, 
suggested, well, there are no major problems. It was wrong. The testing was poorly done. And then simultaneously, the health department did complain. The health department made a statement that the switch should not have happened and argued to block it. The county commissioners supported the health department, but the emergency manager ignored the community's concerns. Well, gentlemen, it looks like we've reached the end of our program. We'd like to give you the opportunity to share with us your final thoughts and your contact information. So, Professor Henning, let's start with you. Well, certainly when you look at what happened in Flint, could it happen anywhere? I hope the answer to that is no. But, you know, this was a series of uh, seemingly small missteps that have now suddenly burgeoned into a real issue. So it can happen anywhere. And as far as contact information, I'm easy to find. I'm at Wayne State University. My email is peter.henning at wayne.edu and on Twitter at Peter J. Henning. Thank you for the opportunity, too. You're welcome. And Professor Jacobson. For years, the state of Michigan, other states, and the federal government have been under-investing in public health and specifically and more generally in our infrastructure. This is a, a disaster that was inevitable. It's important to understand that one of the basic functions of government is to protect the population's health. Flint demonstrates the consequences of not taking that seriously. We need to reinvest in public health and in our infrastructure to avoid similar occurrences in the future. My contact information is pdj at umich.edu. Be delighted to talk to anyone who's interested. Thanks very much for the opportunity to be on the show. Peter Jacobson and Peter Henning, thanks so much to both of you for taking the time to be with us today. Again, we've been talking with Peter Jacobson from the School of Public Health at the University of Michigan, who's both a lawyer and a professor, health policy expert, and Peter J. Henning, a professor at Wayne State University Law School. That brings us to the end of our show for today. This is Bob Ambrogi. Thanks for listening, and join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. 
Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.